This morning from the reading of God's word, we're in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we thank you for our uh, time together this morning, the time that we can come and pour over your word, um, that we can uh, learn not to, not to have folly in our own hearts, uh, wanting to chase after sin and evil, uh, but to learn about you, your nature, uh, the glory that you possess, uh, and your intent for us, uh, your creatures. I pray that we would uh, be wise to turn to your word and to gain instruction from it. I pray that uh, Dan would um, have wisdom in preaching your word to us and that your spirit would be amongst us. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be in the pulpit again next week. The plan is to be back into First Peter, and we'll pick back up with that. But as we take just a little breather from that, we look at Psalms one more time. Just to repeat a bit of the introduction, last week we looked at Psalm 1. This morning we will look at Psalm 2. The Psalms are collected and they're gathered and given to us in a specific order, in a specific way. It's not random that they are given to us as they are. And so Psalm 1 and 2 really serve together as that introduction or a gateway into the Psalms. If the Psalms are God's word that speak to us in a unique way, and in many ways they don't speak just to us, they speak for us, we said. They're the, the prayer book or the song book, they're poems within God's word given to us. And so we understand that God is building his kingdom in the midst of a sinful generation. That, that sin abounds among us, and yet God is building his kingdom. And so we are part, we are citizens of that heavenly kingdom and yet, at the same time, we are very much citizens of a hum human kingdom, the kingdom of humanity. And so all sorts of issues come our way. Things aren't always quite black and white. They're often gray. Things don't always go smoothly for us. And so living the Christian life in this age just at times becomes confusing, becomes difficult. There are ups and there are downs in it. There are sorrows, there are joys in it. And the Psalms speak for us in the midst of all of those. They teach us how to be grounded, how to come to God no matter what is taking place. And so Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 working together. Psalm 1, you remember, begins, Blessed is the man, happy is the man. The idea of joyfully satisfied, true happiness belongs to the man who meditates upon God's law. That is, who thinks upon it, who allows the truth of it, the understanding to descend from his mind to his heart. He begins to sense or to feel or to grasp God's word. We said that by that, God mediates his presence to us. That is, God's spoken word with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The presence of God mediated to us, and so we think upon it. It begins to change the way we sense 
and feel God, the way we understand him in day-to-day interaction. And in so doing, that man becomes blessed. He, he becomes like that tree planted by the water who drinks deeply from God's word. He becomes stable in his happiness. And even though, as we saw, he'll face all kinds of seasons, all kinds of hardships, all kinds of blessings, no matter what it is, he still has a blessedness, a joyful satisfaction around him. Unlike the one who looks for happiness elsewhere, who sees it go like the chaff in the wind. Psalm 2, you get to it, and it feels like a totally, it is very different in the way it's communicated to us. It's very different than Psalm 1, and yet they work together. We see a lot of parallels, and at the end of Psalm 2, you see the strongest one, where as Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man, Psalm 2 ends, blessed is the one who takes refuge in God. This is still the joyfully satisfied life that's coming at us. How do we live? How do we speak to God? The one who takes refuge in him. The idea of refuge there isn't just hiding, but it's the one who hopes in the Lord, the one who sort of sets all in, sets up his camp, his home, stakes claim in the presence of God. This is where I belong. This is my hope. He says, Rejoice, rejoicing and blessed and happy is that man. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 then, as they're going to teach us how then to approach God, how to live this life, how to speak to God in the midst of all its difficulties, they really are what they are doing is developing what our relationship with God looks like from a covenantal perspective. So what I want to do this morning is just take a little bit of time and give you sort of the covenant background that really makes these psalms come alive. And then we'll look at a few things from Psalm 2. When I say a covenantal background, Psalm 1, it's built on an idea of the Mosaic Covenant. That is, that obedience and faith brings blessing, disobedience brings curse and judgment. That's laid out for us clearly through the Mosaic Covenant. And you see that easily through Psalm 1. There is the one who is the wicked, sits in the way of the wicked and the sinner sits among the scoffers. And then there is the one who is planted deeply by the living water, one who meditates upon the word, one whose influence and source of life is coming from the things of God and his word, and the other who disregards it. In fact, they actually scoff at it. And the Mosaic Covenant is built, and there are two trajectories here. There's one who by faith and obedience embraces what the Lord commands, and that is a joyful, happy life. And there's those who think, no, that steals my joy. The happy life is doing whatever I want, and they reject and throw off what the Lord commands. And while Jesus Christ significantly, obviously, changes the way the law functions in our life, we still live a life of gratitude that demands faith and obedience to God's word. And so Psalm 1 gives us, we see it's growing out of this covenantal background. Psalm 2 takes us back even further. It takes us back really to Genesis 3.15, lays at the foundation, and we'll see it. Genesis 3.15, that first covenant that we see made between God and Adam and Eve, if you remember what we call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel proclaimed. Genesis 3, man has sinned, they disobeyed God, and God is pronouncing curse on disobedience. 
And he pronounces that curse and it, it extends to all of creation. But then he looks specifically and he speaks to Adam and Eve and the curse between them and the serpent, between wickedness and sinfulness and Eve, that they will be at enmity with one another. It will be an adverse relationship. It'll be a battle. It'll be war. And this war will reach its climax when the seed of this wickedness, that is Satan himself, and the seed of Eve, which is a son who is promised to come, will collide. And in the midst of curse, you have this promise of redemption, that the seed, the son, will come and he will destroy the darkness. But the curse will remain for a while. It'll be an adverse relationship, even them. And so there's this promise that God is going to rebuild his kingdom. They've been kicked out of Eden. The curse is here, but God is going to redeem his creation. He's going to build his kingdom. He's going to do it through Christ. But it's going to take place in enemy territory, as it were. It's going to take place with people who are adverse to him. The church in the New Testament becomes the primary way in which God is continuing to establish his kingdom. And the church is being built in enemy territory. God's promised victory to his church, just like he did in Genesis 3.15. But the victory is that the gates of hell will not uh, succeed against the church. It will not prevail. Which means that there is combat. There, is, there, there isn't... A peaceful relationship. And so God promises that. In Genesis 3.15, I will build my kingdom and it will take place. Victory is guaranteed, but it is an enemy territory. Then we see that continuing to be developed in the Abrahamic covenant. And again, all of this lies at the foundation. You'll see all of this in Psalm 2. These aren't just covenants that don't mean anything. This is how we relate to our God. This is God's promises realized in Christ for us. The Abrahamic covenant, then he promises that he will bless his people. And through that blessing, he will bless all nations. He'll bless his people, and through them he will send that blessing to all nations. All who come to him in faith and obedience will be blessed. That's the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And then he gets more narrow in the Davidic covenant. Again, we see this standing behind Psalm 2. How will the nations be blessed? They'll be blessed through a king who will reign forever. So he promises them a seed, another seed, a son after David, who will sit on David's throne and who will rule and, and reign in righteousness and whose kingdom will be eternal. So as this psalm is sung, the people realize in the psalms, we realize that God's reign of righteousness and peace is going to be realized through the king, through the king that he's promised. As that king does, so does God's people. When he prospers, when there is peace, God's people will know prosperity and peace. The king serves kind of as our representative then. And that's why through the Psalms you see that repeated, Lord, save your anointed. Lord, save the king. Speaking of the king, the anointed one, we know that to be Christ. And as it goes for the king, so it goes for his people, because God's rule and God's reign spreads by the reign of the king, by Jesus Christ. So all of this kind of 
sits right at the foundation as we get to Psalm 2. One more little background note on Psalm 2. It's, psalm 2 is a, a coronation psalm. I'm not like a Hebrew poetry expert by any means whatsoever, so I'm just relying on the commentators who say this. But it's a coronation psalm. That is that it would be sung or performed somehow at some point when a king is taking the throne. So as a coronation psalm, it's also a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is one that points towards, yes, the Messiah, towards the anointed one, the one who is coming, the king. And so these psalms have both sort of a immediate reference point, reference point, a referent as it's called. So it's often speaking to David, and yet you can tell as you're reading this psalm that while there's an immediate reference, it's just foreshadowing and pointing to a greater David, a greater king, something greater to come. And that's pointing to Jesus Christ. We know Psalm 2 is doing this because the New Testament tells us it's doing it. Psalm 2 is quoted as much as any other psalm in the whole New Testament. Christ quotes from it multiple times. The writer of Hebrews quotes from it. In the building of the church in Acts, it's quoted from. And every time it's, it's quoted, it's referring to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that early covenant. Genesis 3.15, the son who will come to establish his kingdom in the midst of enemy territory. He's, he is the same seed who will bring blessing to all nations. He is the same seed, the son of David, who will be the king who will reign, and through his reign, peace and righteousness will extend to all the nations. So it's a messianic psalm pointing to Jesus Christ. All right. That's all our background stuff. So Psalm 2 itself, again, looking at commentators, as they talk about this psalm, they say there's really sort of four voices that are taking place in the psalm. So this is, as we said, a coronation. So it probably would be either sung or recited somehow during coronation. You have four voices. So they suggest that instead of a choir singing it, there would be, each section of the song would be sung by a different either soloist or group or something. And it kind of then crescendos um, in a real beautiful way. So that's why I want to look at the psalm this morning, is from the four voices that speak in this psalm. And remember our two pieces, how the psalms work in our life, speaking for us. How do we navigate life? How, how do we worship and, and relate to God in the midst of the difficulties of life? And then secondly, all of those covenantal promises that are going to be realized in Christ, have been realized in Christ, how do they work out in our lives? Okay, voice number one is the voice of rebellious man. The voice of rebellious man, verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is his king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see all the verbs in here, full of turmoil, of, of unrest, of uprising, of wickedness. They're plotting, they're, they're gathering together, setting their heart against the kings. Why do the nations rage 
Well, the immediate context, David as his kingdom, the warrior king that he was, as his kingdom spread and all of these vassal nations, some gladly sort of joined in, but many fought being taken over by, by Israel, by David. And so these nations rage against David, even though the promise is that there will be blessing to these nations through Israel. And so you have this sort of historical context, but we, again, move it to Christ as we're commanded to do in the New Testament as we are as that is so carefully shown to us in the New Testament. Why do the nations rage against God? They set themselves up. They oppose God and his blessing. They are from Psalm 1, the sinner, the scoffer, the wicked. They, they plot against God. They say, let us burst these bonds from us. And it's because there's this misunderstanding that, that those who have, not been, who have not been given eyes to see have. And it's this, that happiness is found outside of Christ. Freedom is found outside of Christ. What Christ wants to do is limit my freedom. And so I want to burst those bonds. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I can't be who I want to be. Don't tell me where happiness is found. This is Psalm 1 again. They're pursuing happiness like the chaff. The wind will blow it away. What they don't realize is that freedom is found in Christ. You're in bondage to sin and to death. You are blind to the truth. Christ says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You come to him. It doesn't mean you won't experience those seasons still, but that is where true blessedness and happiness is found as you drink deeply from that living water. The nations rage. They say, no, I, I will not look outside of myself for the answers. I will look inside. I will reject what the Lord says. They burst off those bonds. They plot against the Lord. Twice in there you see the word against. They, they set themselves against the Lord. They set themselves against his anointed. Really, that idea of against is about the simplest definition we have of sin. To set yourself against the Lord, against what he is calling you to do and how he is calling you to live. So before we get too sort of full of ourselves and think of us inside as the people who are holy, righteous, and everyone out there is wicked, think about how often you, in the weekly struggle that we have, if not daily struggle that we have, of setting ourselves against God and his revealed word for us. He's given us speech, he's given us words, and he's told us how to use it, but how often do we use it for dishonesty? Or we, we use it as a sword and cut at someone else. He's given us eyes to behold his, his creation and his beauty, but how often do, do we look on things lustfully he's given us sex but how often do we stand against how god has has laid it out to be to be enjoyed in the bounds in which it glorifies him and we decide this is how i want it this is that you know his burden is like god doesn't realize what actually i need to make me happy let me set myself against it and burst these bonds i figured out a better way and the seasons change, and the happiness, the joyfulness, the 
meaning in all of it is like the chaff that is blown away in the wind. We need to be serious about standing in line with what God tells us and standing against what God tells us. It's no small thing. We see this culminate in human history in Acts chapter 4. As they review the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, this psalm is quoted. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As they review the crucifixion, they see this is the ultimate stance of man plotting against and rebelling against God. As when God sends his anointed, his king, they reject him and they crucify him. You see where he points the blame? On Herod, on Pontius Pilate, on the Gentiles, and on the Jews. <laughs> on all of us. In our sinfulness to rise up against God. And so you see it here in the psalm at the very beginning, the rebellious man. And while there is a call to make sure in our own hearts and our own minds that we're not trying to cast off the, the burden that is easy with Christ in order to pursue happiness in a different way or pursue fulfillment in a different way, there also should be a measure of encouragement that, again, the kingdom is being built in enemy territory you might not always find immediate success. It might be difficult in your evangelistic efforts and your living for Christ. It is a difficult task at times. The second voice we see is the voice of God. Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The voice of God, the imagery we get is that he can't really speak because he's laughing. While the nations rage, he laughs. The picture here is, if you've seen a toddler just, you know, throwing a real fit, losing his mind, you look at it and think, I mean, you let, well, if you're the parent, you don't laugh, but other people look at it and laugh and think, he's accomplishing nothing, this little two-year-old. I think, I saw a family video, it was a while back, but most of my cousins are a lot older than me. There was one Christmas, we were all in Florida at my, my dad's family down there. And I was probably five or six. And I had a cousin who at that time was probably 19, 20. I thought he was the coolest guy, he's a football player, nice guy. And I remember wrestling him. I remember this vividly in my mind. And then the video reminded me of it. <clears throat> and I remember two things real specifically about wrestling him. One is that I thought I was beating him. I remember as a five-year-old thinking, I am taking it to him. Because he's being nice to me, and I'm on top, and I, you know, I'm trying to pin him down. And the other thing I remember was him laughing nearly uncontrollably. Which just, you know, got me going that much more. Where I'm, you know, I'm like nearly crying and like losing my mind here. And 
going to get, you know, ready to throw some punches or something. But he's laughing because he can tell I am giving it like 110% and think I'm winning this fight. And it, to him, it's, it's humorous that I'm trying this hard to pin him and think I'm doing something. That's the picture here. The nation's raging and plotting and getting together and, and foaming at the mouth coming after God. God doesn't sit back and cower. He doesn't think, oh man, my plan isn't right. I, his, his response, the picture we get, is that just kind of laughter. Look at those silly people. God's plan will not be thwarted. He does not cower when the people rage against him. Listen to just a few of these verses. Acts 17, 25. He is not served with human hands as though he needs anything, since he is the one who gives to all men life and breath and everything. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans of man, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will always stand. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times to things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 135, 6. All the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth. Psalm 115, 3. God is in the heavens, all that he pleases, he does. One last one, Job 42, 1 and 2. I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can ever be thwarted. You see the picture. The nations are but a drop in the bucket to him. They rage. They, they, they rise up and they do their best to cast off God, to, to stop his kingdom. They will not listen to him. And they only serve God's purposes. Even we saw in Acts 42, or Acts 4, do you see how that passage ended? As everyone plots together against the Lord for his crucifixion, in order that they would bring about what God predestined according to his plan. You, you see it most vividly at the cross, don't you? God's purposes and God's plans prevailing. Again, I think of encouragement in our own hearts, encouragement for, I think, the loves in Ethiopia, all that seems stacked against them, the difficulty in what they're doing. You think that that challenges God, that he's surprised by that, that he just doesn't have an answer for it? I think of some of the, maybe in our personal lives, we don't face a whole lot in, in America, we don't face a whole lot of raging against us for our Christian faith. Maybe, you know, you're joked about behind your back a little bit or you don't get invited to some party or something. It's not that hard to face. And yet there's darkness all around us. I think we have a couple of people involved with the Women's Choice Network or uh, people involved in the social work in this area. And you're kind of hit in the face with people trying to burst off the bonds of God's call on their life to pursue joy and fulfillment outside. You see just the darkness and the ugliness of it. We need to take hope, take confidence, take comfort in a sovereign God who accomplishes all his plans. The third voice, verses 7 through 9, now we hear the voice of the king. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
The writer in Hebrews, as he talks about Jesus Christ being better than everything, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the Old Testament sacrificial system, better than Aaron, whatever it is, Jesus Christ is better. He quotes from this. And he says, to, to which of the angels did God say, I have begotten you, you are my son. The king is coming and he is the son of God. Christ is that king. It, it all comes to him. He is the focal point of it. You see, verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Again, that Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Davidic covenant coming through fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No matter where we are, we're always driven back to the gospel events, aren't we? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's because it's all leading up to him, and it's all accomplished in those moments, and it going forward, all our hope rests in it. That he is the king, that the nations are his, that the heritage, the blessings are his. He is exalted as king because he came, because of his humiliation, as we talked about in the catechism because of a life of perfect obedience, because humility all the way to the cross. As he spent three days in the grave, and then because he lived the perfect life, sin and death had no hold of him. And he, he raises victorious. Christ, tell, we're told in Philippians that Christ, therefore, God, therefore, has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, Every knee shall bow on earth and heaven. Things below the earth I'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's at the cross that all of this is realized. At the cross and the resurrection. That the king's victory is established. That that death blow promised in Genesis 3.15 is accomplished. Now, we live in that time, we've talked about it, in, in a kingdom that is secure, in a kingdom that will be victorious, but is not yet consummated. And so we feel the struggle, we feel the tension still of a kingdom being built in enemy territory. But Jesus Christ has won the victory, that kingdom will be built. Let's look at the last voice as we finish up. Voice number four is the voice of the preacher then. What do we do with all this? It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Reminds me of that, uh, was amazing grace, the second verse. It's his grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. In C.S. Lewis, I, I've come to just, you know, I, I kind of always want to be reading C.S. Lewis. Um, something by him. If you've ever read him, read something by C.S. Lewis. For me, it's like uh, 
it's like a cheat in my meditation. It's someone who's meditated on the word deeply and kind of spoon feeds you just these, these ways of, of taking God and truth and giving it in full color and full light. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis has written, the Chronicles of Narnia, that's probably his most well-known works. You've either read some of it or seen a movie or something. And he has a character in there, Aslan. And Aslan is the lion. He is the, the God figure, the Lord figure, Savior, Redeemer. And Aslan is a lion. And, and I think it's the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's this conversation back and forth between Susan and Mr. Beaver. Not that you need to know those names, but... Susan has yet to meet the lion, but he's being told, Mr. Beaver's telling him about him. He says this, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. But he's wild, though. He's not a tame lion. I think of the way that Christ is communicated to people nowadays. It's much more like a domesticated little kitty than a wild, roaring lion. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the one who comes as the warrior king to crush the head of the serpent. As you read these psalms, do you hear him time and time again talk about the devastation that he will bring upon the people who oppose him, on the nations that rage against him? We paint this picture of Jesus like he just sits in heaven and he just, you know, pining for a friend. If, if we would just like Jesus, and he's knocking, knock, knocking at the door, if we just let him in, he'd be so happy. As if he is some weak individual who just, oh, he can't accomplish his purpose, and he's just sort of crying for us to be his friend. Our songs sound like that. It's more like he's our boyfriend, that he is the creator, redeemer, king. That's not the kind of Christ that, that brings forth, that, they, that we understand as we meditate on his word, as the word goes from our head to our heart, that demands our respect and demands our obedience, but brings forth joy and delight in serving him. Look at how it says it. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. This isn't live your life and just, when you have time, make room for Christ. He'll feel good about it. This isn't, let's create a Jesus who, who fits my schedule and who fits kind of how my passions lie out. And so he really has no claim on my finances and no claim on my calendar, no claim on my time. Because, you know, he'll understand. And so when I want to do this, now Jesus is like this. And, and he just kind of becomes this little... I don't know, genie or someone who seems needy, like he just needs us to love him somehow. That is so far from the Christ of the scriptures, the Aslan, the roaring lion. We need this full picture of a Jesus who indeed is meek and merciful and loving and who invites us to come. 
but who is sovereign, who is not safe. That he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what drives us back to worship him. To find wonder and sense and something that can capture our heart and our mind, even in the really difficult times of life. That's what meditation upon God's word will do. It'll take this understanding of who God and who Christ is, and when you really start to think about it, and you let the sense of that into your heart, your rejoicing becomes rejoicing with trembling. Your service is service with fear. Not, not that you're scared of him, but you are in awe of him. That he is great, and he is greatly to be praised. The psalmist is setting up for us in Psalm 1 and 2. You've got 148 more psalms to work for through in your own. As you sing, as you pray, as you worship in these psalms. You need to have a clear picture of who Christ is. And he is far greater, far more awful, far more awesome than you can begin to think or imagine. And these psalmists explode with that kind of language of a just and a merciful and a terrifying and a meek and kind Christ. And then you need to realize as we walk through life and the joys and the difficulties, they're all going to come. It, it's, it seems easy as we sit in a service, it's difficult as we walk through life, whether you're a child facing the things you face, a single facing the things that you face, a couple, someone who's lived a lot of their life, they're trying to persevere on the path. How do we do it? Will you serve someone who indeed is the seed promised in Genesis 3.15, is the blessing promised to Abraham, is the king promised he is a roaring lion. He is worthy of our worship, of our praise. In him there is true delight, true joy, true satisfaction that stands the test of every season, isn't blown away with the chaff. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we think of verse 12 of that psalm. Here's the prayer. Lord, help us kiss the Son. That we would kiss the Son. What an incredible invitation that this lion, God in the flesh, that we would be invited to come and to kiss the Son. Lord, there is affection there, there is devotion. There is allegiance. There is awe. Lord, there is life-sustaining power and life-sustaining joy in a life lived that kisses the sun. Instead of trying to burst off his bonds and find happiness, find joy, find identity somewhere else, let us come only through your grace and kiss the sun. Lord, what a great invitation. Let our lives be lived in that way.